1: episode 58 of wonder tour this time we're going into stranger things one we're going to be focused on episode five the flea and the acrobat as we start to finish out our compassion series in part one we're going to talk about how we can have compassion on our peers now this is really difficult especially when we might not want to believe them or be predisposed to believe what they're telling us As we look across the kids, we see in Episode 5 this big conflict between Lucas and Eleven and Mike who aren't really agreeing with each other's perspectives and are trying to have compassion on each other as the kids are following the compass to try to find the place that the energy is coming from but in the end, it causes a fight. And though that fight was necessary in order to achieve resolution, it teaches us something about how we can have compassion on each other when the information isn't always clear. We also have a compassion situation going on with Joyce and Hopper. Up until this point, everybody's telling Joyce that she's crazy, she has a bad situation with her ex-husband who's coming in and trying to use her to get money and tell her that she needs to go to a mental hospital. But finally, we have a breakthrough here as Hopper really seeks to understand Joyce and listen to her and not tell her what he thinks, but instead to understand how she thinks about things. So once again, this teaches us how can we work with our peers and have compassion on our peers, even when we might not agree with them or believe what they're saying. All right, welcome back to Wonder Tour episode 58. As Drew
0: said in the intro, Stranger Things. Kinda of said that last time we had the we had our little creepy voice, got our creepy voice out, even though that's not really what this show's so much about. Brian is back with us this week. Hey Brian, how's it going?
2: Hey guys, happy to be back as always.
0: All right, we're gonna launch into this. We've kind of got something framed up here. Drew, why don't you kick us off?
1: So in the intro, I talked about how we have compassion on our peers. There's different types of compassion, and we've kind of looked at them holistically so far, having compassion on different individuals or just on a population, or how do we handle that as we've navigated across Batman and Thor, et cetera. Now we want to get pretty specific because as we look at Stranger Things, there's this clear differentiation between these layers. We have the kids' layer, the teens' layer, and the adults' layer. And Episode 5 is really where we see some level of synchronization between the individuals across each layer. Not vertically between the layers, but horizontally between the layers. So we see, finally, Mike, Dustin, Lucas kind of get to be on the same page here as a result of this conflict. And they all start to believe what Elle is telling them. And then from the adult's perspective, Joyce and Hopper are teaming up. And then, of course, we also have Nancy and Jonathan starting to team up here as well. So I think that's kind of our frame up is these three different layers and the sync up that's happening on each layer as a result of compassion. So, I mean, how do you see, Derek, that relating to our lives and our businesses?
0: Well, I think we've we've always got people that are going to stay in their lane. I think it is because they are it's more convenient to be in that lane, right? So the adults are kind of staying in their lane, the teens are I don't know, the teens are kind of fun though because the teens are a little unpredictable. I think the, the kids are super predictable. <laughs> they obviously have that they're going to believe whatever even though Lucas is probably the most skeptical out of all of them. And that skepticism is a bit inspiring from Lucas, isn't it? What do you think?
2: Well, yeah, certainly the as Drew alluded to in the opening, like one of the signature moments in this episode is the kids have decided to go find where those energy source is coming from, how they can get to the upside down. And they've deduced that they can do it with their compasses and they're trucking along the train tracks following their compasses. Lucas is the one that figures out that L with her powers has been. Messing with the compass headings and keeping them from achieving their goals, and that precipitates this conflict among the group that sort of breaks up the team a little bit. But Lucas is—he's not only the skeptic, but he's probably the most realistic or at least fanciful of the group, and so he's able to notice the details of what's actually happening around him and call it out. And what that identifies is that although they—they they all thought they had the same high-level goal, they kind of weren't really agreed in how they were going about it, and it precipitates out a lot of the conflicts that were already there. In particular, shows that Elle was, in her own way, exercising compassion by trying to keep them from getting to the dangerous place. She says, this is not safe, but she doesn't know how to do it skillfully. They don't know how to process it skillfully, and so it turns into a scuffle and a dispute that sort of breaks up that party for a little bit. Well, I think this
1: brings up something interesting, which is, as we start to get to the end of this compassion series compassion is really tricky. We keep coming up with that, right? It's so hard to find the line of compassion. And that's what we talked about in Obi-Wan was the line between compassion and wisdom and how it's so freaking difficult for him to find that line sometimes because he wants to do the right thing what or what seems like the right thing in the moment. He wants to save the person. But is that really what having compassion means? And I see a lot of that here too. And I think the point that I want to make is that having compassion on somebody, it starts with a feeling and a thought towards towards that person but that's not enough to just think i want to do what's best for this person we have to actually make that actionable by processing it through all these different models that we've been working on on wonder tour and external to wonder tour as well all these different mental models that we have right
0: well i think there's there's something that's interesting here that you're as you're talking this always is the way it works It's that as we become an adult and we are using all those models, and I think this is the paradox of having more models, that you become more refined and you are much less likely to do what Lucas has done in this other scene. And I find it interesting that with the kids, when he does that, that's forgiven much more readily. And I think adults have a lot harder time forgiving that, however they should right? They should readily forgive uh, that type of a situation. But I think it's very interesting that adults are rarely raw and they're rarely forgiving. And kids are frequently raw and frequently forgiving. Who is more likely to exhibit compassion? And we have statistical data here in this episode. (laughs) So I do want to say there's a number of data points here. But what do you guys think about this raw versus refinement and how it inhibits compassion?
2: No, that's really great. That's a nice way, nice angle to take on it, because what we're seeing is we've talked about on some previous discussions, you know, the adults, senior people in an organization, experts in a field can get very attached to their worldview. One of the things that being attached to worldview or being very sophisticated or expert in your worldview does is it makes you able to synthesize information very quickly, fit into the right place and decide how to act. One of the other things that it does is it sort of blunts your curiosity and it makes you predisposed to view the world through the lens that you already understand. Kids who are by definition sort of still building their worldviews are much more able to adapt new pieces of information and much more able to recover from disruptions to it. So I think, yeah, exactly as you called out, we see that sort of play out here where the kids are all in on there's an upside down and it's just like Dungeons and Dragons and we're still alive and we got to go take care of this, right? They're very easy to adapt to those things, but they don't necessarily have the tools and skills to go out and execute it, and they don't necessarily have the organization to go out and execute it, whereas the adults have a much harder time. The You know, Joyce has everybody in the episode is expressing compassion for her, but not aligned with her goals. It's really sad that this happened to you, but anyway, you have to get over it because Will's gone. You know, they don't buy into her unusual worldview at a variety of extreme ways, and Hopper only does because he goes out and gets his own experience. Like, he doesn't just listen to her and say, oh, I'm going to decide to believe you. He approaches it from his own angle and goes and has a traumatic experience of his own and goes to the lab and finds out that his place is bugged. And then finally he's like, oh yeah, you were right all along. It was bonkers, but actually you were right.
1: So I like what you're saying here about both of you are saying on how the models kind of differ, right? You just have these immature models when you're a kid for how to deal with these situations. But because of that, there's so much more leeway in the models. There's space in between models. There's space left inside of each model in order to still change your mind on how that model might operate. So when a situation happens and you're processing it through the models in your head, and I know we've talked about this before, but I'll just kind of give another recap. Your mental models, when we talk about those, it's kind of a standard term if you're not familiar with it. Mental model is all about your processes or even sometimes sub-processes that are going on in your head or your below-the-surface processes that you're using. Brian, what you said, it's like pulling in all the inputs, putting it into buckets, and then making a decision based on it usually. making a judgment. Sometimes it's not even a decision. It's just, okay, what does this mean? And I think kids have so much more open space in their models that they're able to understand compassion differently. Now, let's apply this to compassion, specifically for each of us, whether we realize it or not, we have some model or models for compassion. So the adults models for compassion, what I'm seeing here is they've kind of a fixed model for compassion. Now, compassion is that when I see somebody who's hurting, I should maybe mourn with them if I can. And I should maybe give money to the poor or whatever. You know, I know those are good things. (laughs) And if my loved ones are going through a difficult time, then I'll go and visit them at the hospital. We as adults have created such firm models for these things. And kids don't have those firm models for what compassion is. So their models are (laughs) truly to have a vast model of compassion. You have to have a childlike model.
0: Well, and I would say this is that if you tell somebody what you're really thinking, like Lucas actually makes an accusation. Think about the last time that you heard an adult make an accusation towards you. You probably don't talk to that person anymore. You are so hurt for yourself oh, right. And you just can't even think about what they were thinking anymore. You're like so angry with them because you're like, how dare they violate all the models? (laughs) I mean, and isn't that what it comes down to is like, you should have known that that's called common sense. Or there's a, there's a model out there. I've been thinking about this lately is like, what is classy? What does classy mean? Classy is a model of behavior that people have come up with. And there are certain things you do and there are certain things you just let go. And you're like, don't bother me because you're classy. Right. And I think that's interesting that the kids here, they get stuff done because they are willing to be raw with each other. And that's why I use that word raw, because raw literally describes a situation where you don't have armor. You don't have your shields up. There is no there's nothing to defend yourself with. Whatever comes in, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. But you're going to process it like Brian said. And and you said too, Drew, these models have room to kind of they have a lot more elasticity to them versus this like rigidity that the adult model has. And I, I think there's something significantly there about why adults much less frequently have compassion and how adults actually have to flip the child switch and say sometimes what's on their mind, right, in a respectful way and filter it, etc. But they actually have to flip that switch more mindfully. And the child doesn't have to do that. But the adult, like Joyce, they look at Joyce and they say they apply the label to her because she violates their models that she's crazy. So that's what they do. They ostracize they surround or like, think about Mike's mom, right? And she's got kind of a heck of a husband, right? <laughs> that guy's a disaster. So she has no support around her, but she's like trying to do normal, right? What is defined as normal. And when she encounters Joyce and her hysteria, she does not know how to handle that. They normalize it out. Other adults would normalize it out.
2: That kind of overlaps a little bit with our white blood cells conversation, right? <laughs> the middle management of When you bought into a system, your default reaction to things is that, you know, we should just follow the system. We should just do the thing. And things that deviate from that are dangerous. But it's also interesting that if you think about this analogy, not just explicitly with kids and adults, but also layers of an organization, right? You have the same problems and the same challenges where you at least are able to be authentic with your peers it's more normalized to have honest conversations and complaints and find problems and solve them amongst peers and it's less normalized to have those honest conversations up and down the layers and less normalized to be able to deploy empathy or compassion up and down the layers and so you definitely see that clearly in this like you said with the parents You know, the kids are like, this is what's going on. And then the parents are like, anyway, you stay in your room tonight. (laughs) Like, I don't, I don't care about your worldview. I don't care about your perceived problems. This is the way that things need to work. Stay in your room tonight. You know, we see that behavior, even when everybody's adults, but they are at different layers of maturity or experience or authority in an organization. You'll see the same kinds of things where you want to, you sort of want to box in the deviations or not deal with the things that don't match up with the plan or the worldview.
0: Is it that compassion is looked down on because it disturbs the stability in the layers?
1: Oh, well, compassion is inefficient. We keep talking about it. It's not energy efficient. Think about it this way, right? When a business goes from being a one-person show to being a small team, to being a small company, to being a corporation, you have to be efficient at that point. We specialize more. We create more rigid processes and systems to manage things. Essentially, we create more rigid models for everything in the name of efficiency and productivity. But what that does is give you no lateral movement. Now everything's inflexible because you have to follow it a certain way. Otherwise, the other group can't get what they need. And otherwise, the holistic process doesn't run correctly. So I think the same thing kind of happens with that crystallization of our processes and mindsets as we get older. That's what I'm attributing it to most of all. I think it's all about how we we try to create these mental models primarily to be efficient and compassion isn't efficient. So we throw that one to the side and say, I'm going to relabel compassion in my head. My compassion will just be feeling for people. I'll just feel for them when they're hurting. I want to bring in this quote from Father G from Homeboy Industries. This, This dude is a legend in helping the poor in L.A., He says, compassion isn't just about feeling the pain of others. It's about bringing them in towards yourself. So that's not energy efficient to you when somebody's in pain, when somebody seems like they're having a mental breakdown, to bring them in towards yourself.
2: Well, I love that you brought energy into that, right? Cause that actually, it actually calls right back to this episode. If we think about the things that are happening all around us that we don't see because they're in a different, you know, different version of reality that people are experiencing that we're not, or that, you know, they're a piece of the world that we can't understand or digest. Just as they say that our physics teacher decides to tell us in this episode, right? You know what it takes to get to that space and understand it is a tremendous amount of energy. It is not a trivial task to punch through not just layers within an organization or a culture, but actually to the different worldview.
0: Well, let's if we're going to go to the business dimension here. I should say business universe, but let's talk about the fact of what is that energy, right? Right. A lot of times it comes in the form of questioning and answering, and you usually get more questions. For instance, why are we having this meeting? You're not even in my area right? And then you are forced to explain the linkage, but you use this, you do this, right? I also do this. Oh, well, that's not exactly the same, right? But it's it's like 90% similar. So that's the energy that, you know, you keep having to explain some of the, oh, what's the purpose of this? Why are we doing this? What's the purpose of this? There's so much of that because they want to continue to operate within that space, right? And you're here, you're like, I'm here from another layer, right? And you're having to put that energy into it. And it's a lot of explaining, isn't it? Isn't that a lot of the energy? I think when we're talking about helping somebody that maybe is not in the same circumstances that you're in, I think a lot of that energy ends up being about, well, I don't know for sure, but it's almost like it's hard to relate. So I think there's a lot of energy tied up in how it's hard to relate. You can't find a common topic. You run through the weather. What's after weather? What do you guys think?
1: Oh, that's okay. So let's pull into the moment here. We're at the top of the mountain now, Derek, because where you're getting to here is how do we relate to each other? How do we understand each other in the midst of this kind of chaos in terms of information that's available? We picked episode five specifically because we wanted to talk about the moment where Lucas realizes that Eleven is messing with the compasses and leading them in circles. This causes the major conflict of this episode, where the kids start to, well, outside of Dustin, they all start to kind of get in a fight with each other, as kids might do. And so again, while we're trying to take a childlike wonder here, we're not suggesting that we fight like children, necessarily. As adults, we have different models for fighting as well, and those models are a little bit more effective. <laughs> as we get into this one, this moment here, I think it's so interesting to think about Lucas is just not thinking about the other kids, right? He's just like 11 is, you know, his model in his head says she is lying to us. You know, she's saying she's helping us, but she's not. And that's all he can see. And on the flip side of that, Mike is like, but I can tell 11 is good. I know she's good. I've seen it. That's all he can see. So he just trusts without seeing at this point. And then 11 is just like, she's trying to have compassion on them. She's trying not to let them find the lab. But at the same time, she doesn't have the, you know, she doesn't have the background in her personal experiences with kids to know how to deal with it. And so she just blasts Lucas, basically, because that's all she can think to do. They're all coming from their own perspective. They all really want the same thing in the end, but they don't have a good way of negotiating it. And so when they go to have compassion on each other, they miss the mark entirely. The only one I would say who even comes close to the mark, if we're using the mark as really to bring people closer to ourselves, it's not about just feeling their pain, it's about bringing them into us, is Dustin, because he's the one who's trying to resolve the conflict.
2: No, that's awesome. And it's, so these, these guys are set up really well as kind of character archetypes, right? They've got different strengths and different weaknesses, and they make a pretty good team when they can get around to being a team, but we can all... I can, in my head, very easily imagine individual moments in my life, in the last week, in my career, whenever, when I've been all of those characters, right? I've been the character with superpowers who has no idea how to relate to other people and help them with what the stuff that I know how to do. And I've been the character who's like, why doesn't anybody else see what's going on here? You guys are all idiots, right? And I've been the character that's like, I think we definitely want to go over there, but I don't have any idea how to do that. Can one of you use your superpowers to help me? And I've been Mike, who's just like, I trust that person. We're going to do whatever they say. I've done all of those. And I think recognizing which one of those states you're in in a moment and recognizing like who the people are, you need to fill out your party. You know, I mean, we need a tank. I need a thief. I need an archer. I need a healing mage. (laughs) I need all these skill sets, right? That's really powerful is that sort of recognition of, you know, what role you're able to fill and which of your peers you can pull in to sort of round out, round out the party or round out your abilities. And to recognize that the whole, when you do that, they're not all going to have the same skill sets and viewpoints that you do right at the moment. And so, like you said, developing those conflict resolution skills that don't involve force pushing each other across the junkyard be good. (laughs)
0: That's perfect, Brian. I love that. I think that's really great to be thinking about how you can fit into different archetypes in different moments. And also recognizing that you may not be able to fill up the Dustin bar all the way, right? Because you may not have that gift. You may not have the pure Dustin you know gift however you can still aim to have that overall composition and and understand how they interact is really key to compassion because you can say hey there's a Dustin I need to have compassion on him I know what that is like to be a Dustin I think it's there's something there for sure about studying these characters, studying archetypes and then starting to notice when someone tends toward a certain archetype and I think that does help bridge the compassion with a peer when you just met them because and I hate that you know it's not stereotyping. It, I don't think it's stereotyping. I think it's literally reading the situation. And saying right now at this person's stage of development, they are at a Lucas stereotype. And I can understand that. I can understand how a Lucas would operate and also how they can break out of that, too, because we have neuroplasticity, right? So the reality is we can we can change. And I I always try to keep that in mind. And I think that does enable compassion. Because when you can have a vision for people, right, you you know where they're at now and then you can at least make a guess. You just have to make a guess out of your best goodwill where that person could go in the future. Am I wrong?
2: That's absolutely right. And all models are false, but some are useful, right? If that set of mental archetypes helps you get more quickly aligned with someone to the point where you can have a conversation with them or listen to them or get them what they need, then it's helpful. And it's a, you know, it's a really good way to avoid assuming that they're like you or assuming that they're in the same state of maturity or understanding or worldview that you are but it's maybe insufficient if it's going to be an ongoing relationship you also have to from that basis then listen to them and try to adopt some of their worldview as well and make sure that you understand the nuances of where they might not conform to this mental model that you started with it's a great starting point right it's a great way to make sure that you aren't anchoring to yourself but you're anchoring to where they might be in their life cycle or worldview. But it's also a, it's also false but possibly useful. So I, I like that way of thinking about archetypes when you're in a new relationship or when you're just trying to quickly digest how to navigate a conversation. That's really cool.
1: Brian, you said it's false but possibly useful. Derek, you said that in different ways said the neuroplasticity is still there. So it's, there's still potential for change. That's the critical part. When you're trying to figure out who somebody is, Just remember, a lot of times you're not figuring out who they are. You're not going back and looking at their whole life history and their DNA and everything else. You're seeing who they are in a certain situation. So situationally, you might be able to create a useful model. We should always be considering that that model was useful for that situation and maybe is informative for other situations. But it should not just be taken verbatim and used in every situation. Just because we were able to get somebody to buy in on our side, you know, invest in our project or whatever, in this situation doesn't mean that the same exact thing is going to work in a different situation with that, that person. So I just want to bring in a personal example here that I think fits in well here. So the other day I was just sitting down with a guy talking about life, understanding things, first time ever meeting him, maybe talk to him for 30 minutes. He was really open and vulnerable about the things that he's been through talking about how he was in a tragic car accident the car went off the road uh you know caused him to be in the hospital for a while just a tremendous amount of empathy there just hearing his life story and then we get to this point which felt a little bit like stranger things where i see that he has a dragon tattoo and a dragon necklace and he starts talking about dragons He's like, well, you see, the thing is, dragons are real, and they're just misunderstood. They're not about killing people. They're just territorial. Humans are just going in on dragon space, and when humans go into dragon space, they should expect to get burned. It really threw me for a loop, because we were having a very grounded conversation to that point, and then suddenly, he came in from left field with, but let me talk to you about dragons, man, because most people don't believe in them, but I'm here to tell you dragons are real. In that moment, I felt a little bit like some of the other characters talking to Joyce. And I'm not saying that, you know, in the end, he's right. And I was oh, I just have to open up my worldview. Apparently dragons are real. I'm not suggesting that. But I'm suggesting, like, how do you have compassion on somebody and bring them into yourself, you know, closer to you without ostracizing their experience and background? And in the end, it's okay if he thinks the dragons are real. What I care about is that he's able to make progress and he's able to become wiser and more loving and have better relationships with other people and have a more fulfilling life. That's what I care about. If having dragons in that life matters to him, that's great. But how do we have compassion on somebody who's trying to tell us that dragons are real when my assumption my entire life has been dragons are not real?
2: And that's really good. I love that. And that's a nice call back to, like Derek said, the the neuroplasticity, right? It's important for us to realize both that other people are not fixed entities with one set of skills and one set of behaviors, but that they behave differently in different situations and will behave differently over time and can learn to become wiser and more skillful and more loving. But it's also super important for us to realize, especially as we get more senior and adult, That we're the same, that we will continue to grow and have new realizations about the world and new experiences and become more skillful. And that not having a fixed view of yourself is super important to be able to sort of effectively exercise compassion with new people, but also to be able to effectively grow in the world. And we definitely see that, you know, again, in these archetypes in this series and in this episode where the adults have a lot harder time believing that they might be wrong, believing that something that they know about the world isn't a thing that is true about the world. And that's a, it's just a landmine for us to be aware of as we grow in expertise is that we tend to lock into, well, of course, this is the way it works because this is the way it's worked for me.
0: Well, I think there's, there's also something there of that as you grow in maturity with your mental models, they become more symbolic. And when you have this high level symbology, It is harder and harder for someone to come up with the right symbol to disrupt you. So you've got this sand pile. We talked about the sand pile. There's many different uses for a sand pile. When you get to a point where, let's just say dragons are your standpile, et cetera, right? The only way to truly disrupt that compassionately, I believe, is somehow from within for that person, right? They can only disrupt themselves in having that model. You can't outright attack the dragon model, right? You have to do it a different way, you have to find a back door. You have to find another way in to shape that and you have to move something else in place. It's kind of like a puzzle of some sort. Right. And I think that's where compassion looks to. Almost immediately find the physical needs first. I think very much is a bridge to doing that. And then it's almost compassion can be a set of examples. I've seen that with you, Drew. You have a set of examples for living life that you just exude. It just comes out of you. And that person is free to accept that on their terms. And I think compassion works very much like that, too. Compassion's not always forceful <laughs> pushing somebody into a bus. Sometimes you need that, that friendly gut punch. You know, that was the few episodes back, right? We talked about that. We talked about the Batman style of it. Could be the forced reversal of a bad choice that you made. So I think that there are a number of different ways that compassion can work, and that's why people struggle to explain it. But this is another one right here, which is, here's my example. I hope that by being gentle with you, by being kind to you, that some part of that rubs off and you can then shift some of that rigid mental structure internally yourself, because ultimately that's the problem is that it gets so symbolic that you don't understand what someone's saying to you. Isn't that kind of what happens a little bit?
1: Yeah, it comes in and it's Oh, and this is where we talked about in the Batman episodes, the flipping the burger analogy, right? You're flipping the pancake. You come in under and you subvert expectations and you flip it on the other side. You don't attack it from the top. You don't slay the dragon with a sword. You come from a different route. And if when we subvert expectations, if this is our model for change is that change happens through compassion. Whoa, that's going to be a whole lot different than change happens through speaking engagements. Change happens when we have compassion on people, and through that, somebody sees that their model is wrong, right? It's it's not a head-on confrontation between models. I think compassion says, let me show you. If if you really want to be compassionate on somebody, you have to show them. You cannot tell them. It's just useless to tell them.
2: And I want to tag onto that with one of the lessons of this series and, you know, in different flavors of it in this episode, right, is that one of the goals there is not compassion is I'm going to show you that you're wrong, you know, or change is going to happen because you're wrong and you're going to become right change is going to happen because we're going to converge on a worldview and together we can go accomplish something. The purpose of even talking about compassion in this context is not to just go around the world fixing people's problems. The purpose of compassion in a leadership context is we can't be aligned on the same goals and working together effectively unless we understand each other, unless we share enough of our worldview that we can act skillfully together. And in this episode, we're starting to see it converge in some layers and diverge in others, but everybody's struggling to get to the same worldview. And maybe that'll be a nice segue for the next episode, where at some point, the layers are going to have to come together and sort of align their worldview as align their actions. But we're not there yet. These characters are all still trying to work out their interlayer disputes and relationships.
0: I think that's a good place to leave it. I think we've clearly defined challenge with compassion as it applies to peers. Appreciate your guys' viewpoints today. Next week, we're going to be hitting Stranger Things again in a part two. And as you know, our part twos are deeper dives into the topic and the concepts. And we're looking forward to that. And remember, character is destiny. We'll see you next time.